a wise guy, eh? Yes, he is. He's Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball wise guy. And he's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 21st. It's show number 44 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday tout show for you. We will be talking with Gene McCaffrey, the Fantasy Baseball Wise Guy, about some screwball ideas, streaking players, a blast from the rock and roll past, facts and flukes, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon looks at New York Yankees right-handed starter Luis Severino. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Rafael Soriano, Tyler Saladino, and Yuri Perez. It's another big Tuesday tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The wise guy is in the house. We are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, our feature expert interview with the fantasy baseball wise guy himself, it's Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Hi, Patrick. Great to be here, as always. And in fact, you are our first uh, Tuesday Tout guest in the regular season, and now you're the first uh, Tuesday Tout guest of the second half, so there's a certain symmetry, a certain, uh, what can I say, uh, elegance to that. Yeah, (laughs) we like symmetry and elegance. Elegance and symmetry is Gene McCaffrey's middle name. Gene, how are your uh, fantasy teams doing? Uh, Well, my full season teams are in the XFL, I'm contending, and I've, I've been going between first and fourth all year until uh, Miguel Cabrera went down, but I'm still hanging on, hoping he'll come back. So I've got a good shot to win in that. Tout Wars, I'm mired in mediocrity. Um, My strategy there did not particularly work well. Um, Also because uh, just guys keep getting hurt, you know, and and part of it is my own fault. But, um, you know, you don't draft Carl Crawford and expect him to to have a full season. But... um, you know, um, at the other hand, uh, the pitching is pretty good. Um, I would have expected better from Tyson Ross, but I did draft a really good pitching staff, and I figured that that would, that would tide me over or at least keep me in contention so that I could get at-bats, if not spectacular stats, from my hitters. And it's not really working because I can't keep him healthy. You know, I started out with Lucroy, and he, you know, was supposed to miss a week or two, and he missed two months. And right. And like that, so um, I still have an outside shot, maybe get into the money, but I don't think I'm going to win in that one. But yeah, the XFL, I might win. I understand you've been digging into the daily games quite a bit, just looking at your Facebook posts and and hearing you on XM and stuff like that. You seem to be enjoying it. How's it going? Well, I'm doing well in that. I've uh, I just did my calculations and I've cashed in thirty nine and a half percent of the contests that I've entered, and I'm playing tournaments almost exclusively, so that's pretty good yeah um I still can't seem to make a profit, but i um right over the I'm right over the line you know i I've lost a little bit of money now, but if I win today then i'll mean it means I'll be up a little bit of money and the way I have it sussed out um what's going to happen is that a couple of the nights this season I'm going to get that extra home run. 
and win in the thousands rather than in the hundreds. And it hasn't happened yet, but I still think it's going to happen. And it might happen three or four times, in which case then, then I'll say I have a very successful season. So uh, what's gonna be, it's going to be fairly successful to very successful at the end, I think. And I do love it. And it, is it a, literally a, a situation where one more home run or one more you know, scoreless inning would put you into the thousands rather than the hundreds? Is it that competitive and close? Absolutely. Yeah, not so much innings, one extra inning. Although, you know, a win um, yeah, sometimes wins. makes that difference. But it's certainly true of home runs. Because, um, you know, in, in, in FanDuel, a home run is six points minimum, and in DraftKings is 14 points minimum. And I've had many nights so far where I've been waiting for that one home run and I and I just haven't gotten it. You know, maybe a single or something like that. And it has been the difference between winning $50 and 500 or the difference between winning 500 and 4000 um, So, yeah, I mean, it is definitely that close and that competitive. Once you get into the money, every point matters. Um, and there's a lot of teams here. So, you know, you, you hit a home run, you vault really high. And as you know, if you play those games, the money doesn't really get serious until you get way high. So, um, so that's what it is. That it's the home run. They're uh, they really are the key to those games. And of course, yeah, you have to have pitching. Now, when you play the tournament games, the conventional wisdom is that you need to be zigging while other guys are zagging and take a few uh, chances. Do you tend to take chances? And if so, do you take them by grabbing at um, lesser pitchers in, in hopes of good matchups? Or are you going for lesser hitters in hopes of good matchups? How do you play the risk-reward game? First of all, I think it's nonsense that you have to necessarily zig while they zag. What you have to do is get the most points. Um, and if the most points are coming from a guy who's going to be very popular, so be it. Nobody's going to have the same team that you do anyway. Um, even if he's you know, 75 or 80% owned, which is very rare, um, you just have to beat them somewhere else. Um, I'm not going to throw away uh, points because somebody decided that. And besides, you don't really know who's going to be, you know, who's going to be so widely owned. You can think that it's true, and usually it'll be true. But it's not always true, or to the extent that you might think it is. So I, I don't pay any attention at all to who I think is going to be popular, because it really doesn't matter. You just have to beat them somewhere else. I have noticed uh, in my limited exposure to the to the daily game that uh, even the most popular players are not that popular. It's pretty rare to see a guy owned by, I don't know, it looks like about 20-25% of, of people in the pool have a particular player, so it's not like it's a 80% of them are, are rostering Clayton Kershaw on his starts. Yeah, I, that's, that's, a, that's just so. and uh, That happens to me all the time. I notice that... Um, that players who I think, oh, well, everybody's going to own him. And it doesn't happen that way. So, you know, think about it this way. If you have, say, three players, each of whom are a third owned, um, and it's a thousand-player contest, you're going to wind up with 27 players who own all three of those players out of a thousand. Right. So, I mean, that's just basic arithmetic. It may be, you know, 31 and it may be 24. Right. But it's not going to be far off that. So, you know, I just say forget it. It's not that important. So, you know, the points are what matters. That's that's the issue here. And how do you determine when you're assessing this uh, to figure out who you think is going to get those points? How much studying and what are you looking for? Well, I do a lot of studying. I mean, I would say that it probably takes me a good two hours a day 
and I do it the night before. Um, I look at, well, there's a lot of things to consider. I mean, I begin with the quality of the player, the quality of the opposition, um, the circumstances. You know, is he home? Is he on the road? Um, and then that tells me who's going to get the most points. And then after that, I look for the, the best salaries. You know, who's got a chance to do something at a low salary tonight? And I just go where that leads me. Um, uh, it, it's systematic in, in a broad sense, but it's not. I, I'm not a slave to a formula. I do look at um, pitcher versus batter data, um, but you have to be really careful with that. I have a whole thing about, about how I use pitcher versus batter data, and I'll tell you if you want. I'll go through it because I think it's important for, uh, for the people, for the more and more people who are playing these games. Um, so if you like, I'll go through and say, first of all, with batter versus pitcher data, it is the last thing that I look at. I first look at how things should be and then look at the batter versus pitcher data for anomalies. Um, is this guy really good against him or is this guy really bad against him? That said, you have to go, one, is this the same pitcher and is this the same batter who have compiled these stats in the past? You know, if a guy has dominated, if CC Sabathia has dominated your hitter, that's completely irrelevant because he's not the same pitcher anymore. So just throw it out. The other thing I look at is I do not look at batting average. I look at slugging percentage versus versus these guys. And that will take some guys off the list and put some guys on the list. If the guy is one for six against the pitcher, but it was a home run, well, that's not so bad. Um, the other thing is strikeouts. If he's you know, 0 for 7 against the guy, but he's never struck out against him, that tells me that he's seen the ball well. And again, I will tend to throw out the 0 for 7 and say, okay, well, he's you know, normal principles of regression apply, and he's going to get a few hits off this guy if he should. You know, if the other, if he's you know the lefty righty matches up and the home road matches up and the quality of the opposition matches up, um, you can go opposite to the BVP data and and be successful. In the past, Gene, you've talked about how much you prefer the salary cap format for season-long fantasy play. Of course, daily fantasy baseball also has a similar salary cap structure. How much does the fact of the salary cap approach contribute to your enjoyment of playing daily fantasy baseball? A lot. Um, I should have uh, gone in with both feet. I was really, um, I didn't throw that much money in early in the season, and um I should have because really it's the same principles of you know points or or categories for dollars that apply to cap, salary cap games that I've been doing for twenty years and more. Um, so so yeah, I should have jumped right in and on the very first Friday night of the season, I oh I was so close and I wound up winning two thousand dollars and it was a you know it was my best night of the year and if only I had to you know put in another fifty bucks or you know like that you know. But I also said before I started this year that I was not going to cry over spilt milk because tomorrow is another day. Uh, Scarlett O'Hara, you sound much uh, much deeper voice than I remember from the movie. Uh, you mentioned that uh, earlier that you play at uh, multiple sites. What are, what are the differences between them, and how do you choose which site you want to play at in a given night? Well, certain nights, well, the, big, the two big ones are... FanDuel and DraftKings, as I'm sure the listeners know, 
Um, and the biggest difference between them is that FanDuel is a one-pitcher site and DraftKings is a two-pitcher site. So there were certain nights that lend themselves more to one-pitcher and, and, and others that lend themselves more to two-pitchers. And I wish there were more sites, and there are lots of them springing up. Um, I'd like to see uh, Fantasy Aces get bigger because I really like their, the structure of their game. There's much more positional flexibility. And they're also a two-pitcher site. And I like the flexibility because it enables you to put, you know, you don't have to have a first baseman and a third baseman. You can have two third basemen or two first basemen, depending on how the salaries line up that night. But, yeah, basically, and then, you know, there are some nights where there are differences in the prices between a player. Um, sometimes DraftKings reacts to, say, Coors Field, um, overreacts to it. Um, whereas FanDuel reacts to it less, although I've noticed that their prices have been creeping up when, when visiting players come into Coors. Um, but basically, yes, it's the salaries, and some nights are better for one site and, and others for the other site. As far as winning is concerned, they're basically the same. I've read about uh, people arbitraging the, the two big sites as well as some other ones in that they, uh, they identify players that they want and then they look around to, uh, to see, well, this site is for this particular player is going to cost me more of, as a percentage of my cap, so I'm going to go to the site where that particular player that I'm really interested in is a lower percentage of my cap, which gives me more flexibility. Do you uh, adopt that kind of approach, find the player first, then find where he's cheapest second? Yeah, well, I do find the player first, for sure. Um, usually what I do is I'll use them at both sites, but use my um, filler players, as it were, to uh, to work around. And if I really think a guy is going to put up the points, well, then I'll pay for him if I have to. Um, the, the only time it's really impossible to do that is if you have a Kershaw or uh, you know, a Scherzer pitching in a, in a great spot and then your hitter is super expensive, you might not be able to get that hitter in on that particular site because it's just it's just too expensive to have them both in. And that does that has happened a few times, but it doesn't happen that often. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball wise guy. And Gene, we just came out of an interesting first half in uh, baseball, and as we head into the second half, let's look back a little bit. What about the first half this year surprised you the most? Well, I... I can't say that I'm really surprised by anything. Um, the the current trend of the last three or four years towards less offense seems to have stabilized, but a very low offensive label uh, level. So that has that's continued. The incredible number of injuries continues. I kind of thought this year that you might see more teams or individual players trying to beat the shift. And while we've seen it a little bit, I haven't seen, I don't think it's nearly as much as it should be. I mean, I understand that there are a lot of circumstances where it doesn't pay to uh, to beat the shift, where you're trying to hit a home run, and that's the way you beat the shift. But, you know, I don't care who the hitter is. If your team is losing by three runs and it's late in the game, a home run isn't going to help you that much. You know, get on base. Um, and I haven't seen that much of it. I was a little bit, but... Uh, not as much as I think we will see in the future if these people will only get smart. Does it ever strike you 
back in back in the olden days when I was uh, playing baseball as a, as a kid or as a teenager and watching the sport, there was a, a great deal of emphasis placed on the ability to choke up with two strikes, take the ball the other way, just you know work your way on base. But it seems, and this I'm not saying anything new here, but I'm I'm curious what you think of it that. Players go up there, and with two strikes, they swing just as though they were ahead in the count. And and uh, is that uh, it? Clearly, must be contributing to the strikeout level. But why isn't some organization saying to its hitters, "Listen, you got to put the bat on the ball with two strikes"? I think everybody is afraid to be wrong, and they're afraid to be criticized, and so they all do the same things. Um, I think somebody decided at some point that power hitters, in particular, should not concede anything with two strikes and to a limited extent i understand that um and and i agree with it to a limited extent but there are times when you you know as i say when you're down by two or three runs a solo home run is no big deal i mean you need three runs um i think what will happen is that somebody will be successful going against it and then everyone will imitate them um, so, you know, it's the same way. I guess it's the same way with people. You know, people like to follow trends. They like to be told what to like. Is that too cynical, Patrick? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I think there's definitely an element of it. And I think people are thin-skinned and looking to protect their jobs. And so they do what everybody else does and figure, that, oh, well, I won't be criticized for it. Well, certainly we see that in how bullpens are managed when uh, anybody has the temerity to ask a manager, why did you do it this way in this situation? And he says, we play it by the book. And nobody ever stops to say, well, did you read the book? Is the book correct? You know, I read Earl Weaver's book many years ago, and I recommend it to anybody who wants to understand baseball very well. Earl Weaver was a genius in baseball. But this whole idea of, you know, a base on balls, a bloop, and a blast is fine. But these days, it seems like everybody plays for the blast, and nobody plays for the bloop or the base on balls. Yeah, as I say, I mean, I think it's something in the general population that, Baseball reflects it that people are, are just don't like to go outside the box until until maybe they're forced to do it. You know, with the last place team. As far as the bullpens are concerned, I thought Kansas City they were so successful, especially in the postseason with their with their relievers pitching them multiple innings. Um, but that was the postseason where they have days off, and so when it came back to the year this year, they still got one guy in the seventh, that one guy in the eighth, and one guy in the ninth. And then if the game goes to 11 innings, they have to use a position player because they have no pitches left, even though they have eight-man bullpens. So I don't know. I I don't know what the answer is, but I think that somebody's going to come along and be forced to go outside the box and then be successful, and then you'll see people imitating it. Because don't forget, this current book is not that new. You know, 15 years ago, nobody was doing this. And then all of a sudden, everybody's doing it. So... You know, I think sometimes we we assume that the way the game is is the way it's going to be, and that's not really true. So let's see what happens and hope that they, you know, come to their senses. Yeah, and I, I, I'm looking forward to somebody adopting maybe a Whitey Herzog approach with lots of defense, lots of team speed, and, and create your runs by moving around on the base paths. Because it seems like, especially for teams who are challenged financially, those kind of players have to be easier to find than guys who can hit home runs in the 30s or, or 35, 40 range in a year, your John Carlos Stanton's and so forth. Those guys are rare, and as 
as a result of being rare, they're expensive. But there are, I, Sam Fold is maybe a poor example because he's too far the other way, but there are a lot of players who could contribute to a reasonable offense by slapping their way aboard and stealing bases and moving around and hitting runs and so forth. Yeah, I, I, that's true. And, and I think it makes for a more interesting game when there are different, when there are competing philosophies. I mean, to an extent, the Royals are that team. I mean, I don't think you can win in today's game with the smaller ballparks with as few home runs as, say, the Cardinals of the 80s hit. But the Royals, are with their fantastic outfield defense, and they don't have a lot of power, they don't even have a lot of starting pitching, which was also a characteristic of the Cardinal teams of the 80s, where you looked at them and they said, well, who's going to pitch for this team? And then at the end of the year, you'd look and they'd all have better-than-league average ERAs, these stiff pitchers, because the defense was so good and the ballpark was big. So they, if you don't walk, guys, and you keep the ball in the ballpark over time, you're not going to give up that many runs. Yes, it was. And uh, Willie McGee out there in center field chasing down fly balls that had plenty of room to be caught. You know, it it, it makes sense to tailor your park to your team and to tailor your team to your park. Uh, it's going to be, I think, a, an area where the – the Andrew Friedmans of the world and guys who are stuck in low revenue uh, situations might be willing to more willing than you know the power teams to to look at alternative ways of approaching the game. It'll be interesting. And speaking of that, Gene, uh, of course, as the second half gets underway, everything you read on the web, everything you hear on every baseball broadcast has to do with trade speculation. Who's going where? It's like political coverage just being about the polls. But there must be other things to look at in the second half. What are you watching for besides the trade speculation? Basically, I'm looking for things to even out. Um, but it was interesting when I, I usually at the beginning of June every year I do a thing where I look for the teams that are playing way over their heads or under their heads and try to grab their closers um, for a save thing. And I, when I did that this year, every single team was in one game of their Pythagorean projection. I don't think it's true anymore. Um, but like everybody else, I, I'm basically looking for the trades, and there's a lot of teams, there's a lot of mediocrity in the game. There are opportunities for a team to get hot and go a long way. Um, I think a lot of people have talked about the Mets in that respect, and I think it's true. I think that the, you know if they ever did get a bat, um, they could go a long way. I think the Nationals can be had. I think they're a very overrated team, especially offensively. And now with Strasburg out, not that he was really contributing that much, um, there's a team that can be had. Um, and I kind of like the way the the Mets play, even though they're not a good offensive team. But with, I just love that dominant pitching and watching uh, Harvey and Degrom and and now Syndergaard and uh, and Mats if he comes back. I mean, that's a team that can go a long way kind of rooting for him, even though I've never been a Mets fan. Well, it's good to just shake things up and keep things close and interesting. The American League East, uh, where the Toronto Blue Jays play, that, that's kind of the home team here where I live, and and uh, seeing them kind of struggling around 500, you think, well, geez, they're a game under, game over is about as high or low as they get, but they're within striking distance, you know, a, a five-game winning streak and a, and a three-game losing streak by the Yankees, and all of a sudden, everything tightens back up, which makes baseball more interesting to watch, but do you attribute any of the team goings on to uh, figuring out which players you want from a fantasy perspective? It's difficult to do, um, and I have to say I really don't. Um, the only thing that I might do is, you know, if when the trades happen, 
when the teams, I, I will look at the circumstances of the new team and, and how they apply to that particular player. So what happens a lot of times is when the, these trades may are made, they say, oh, okay, they got what they need, now they're in, and it doesn't work out that way. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that can happen, but, um, but yeah, I mean, if, if the Blue Jays get a, you know, a great starting pitcher, everybody's going to say, okay, now they're the team that's going to challenge the Yankees. And it might be true. I mean, on paper, it looks like that's exactly what they need. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work that way. And um, that's what I like about baseball is that it's not, you know, we have all these things that we figure out, and they're good, and they're logical, and they follow one from the other. But sometimes, you know, reality just comes up and slaps it right down. and says, ha-ha, you know, if you thought you had me figured out. We're going to work. Now I'm going to just mash you. And days last year, although actually I saw that coming, when they uh, they really, you know, they looked like they had the best offense in the league, but they really didn't. They just had a bunch of hot hitters. And their uh, Gene Mock of a GM decided that he needed uh, more pitchers, which he didn't. He needed more hitters, and he traded away hitting, and they went into the tank. I'm wondering, though, if you looked at a team and you said this team is better than its record appears to be at the half, or conversely, this team is playing above its head, as you uh, said, would that be an opportunity for you to look at players on those teams and say, I'm going to adjust my expectations for them in the second half? Because when the team starts to sink, there's going to be fewer pitcher wins to go around. The, you know, If the team is generally playing above its head scoring runs, that means there's going to be fewer runs scored, fewer RBIs for the, for the offensive players, things like that. Yeah, I think that that can definitely work. The only trouble with it is this year is that I don't see any teams that are really playing over their heads. I mean, with the possible exception of the Cardinals, um, but I'm not going to bet against the Cardinals. <laughs> I mean, they're uh, they're playing 6:30 ball. Maybe they're. I think they are a 600 team. Um, so you might want to, if it's possible, to trade any of their pitchers high. Um, which I don't know that it is. Yeah, it might not be. Yeah. It's hard to say. Yes, I would look. I think you're right in general, but I think specifically this year that's going to be hard to do because I'd look around the, the standings and I don't really see any overachieving teams, including the Astros, who I think most people would say, well, this is a team that's overachieving, but I don't think they're overachieving at all. I think they're they're a little over 500 team, and that's the way they're going to play for the rest of the year. And pretty much where they are. So, yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't lend itself to that. I wonder if there are some underachievers, though, that you might expect to straighten up a, a little bit and, and maybe pick up some momentum insofar as those team-related stats, wins, runs, and RBIs are concerned. Yeah, I think that's more likely. Um, I think you might see it um, with the Angels. They, they don't seem to have fired yet. Um, I think it might happen with the Tigers. Um, if they get Cabrera back in a reasonable, uh, in a reasonable thing. And by the way, as far as underachieving teams, if I had to pick one, I would pick the Indians. Not because I think they're a great team, but because I think that they're better than they've played. Um, so uh, there are specific situations where it's where it might pay or something to keep in the back of your mind. But I wouldn't base my strategy on it. Put it that way. No, it's definitely not an overall strategic issue, but it's in the in the game of fantasy baseball, it's all about finding those little marginal gains you can get here and there, this outfielder in, that outfielder out, based on whatever the rationale is, and, and maybe this is some source of rationale. I agree with you. I, um, so keep it in mind, 
Uh, the Red Sox are another team that might that might play a little bit better. Um, it's hard to know what to make of them, uh, but they have some players that are underachieving, especially Mike Napoli. Um, but whether he's going to pull it off or not is another question because he's that type of hitter that does have long streaks, so he may be in the throes of... Um, the other thing that is if the, if there are teams that dump, and that is going to affect their wins, um, keep your eye on the Padres. Um, yeah. I know that a lot of people, including me, like Padre pitchers, especially at the beginning of the season, but um, they're not going to be getting very many wins if they dump, and they're not a very good team as it is. They, they didn't seem to go about their... You know, they spent a lot of money, they got a lot of big-name players, but they didn't do it very intelligently, and... They're paying the price for it now. And the secondary factor there is that Petco Park is not the pitcher's paradise that it used to be. They put a big building up beyond left field, and apparently that has um, increased the home runs, and home runs are actually up there a little bit this year. And that's why the the Padre pitchers are not doing what they're supposed to do, and I don't think they're going to start doing what they're supposed to do because they're not supposed to do it anymore. On the subject of underperforming teams, what about the Oakland A's? Uh, you mentioned them in another context a second ago, but the, by their Pythagorean, I, I think they're supposed to be around 53 wins. Instead, they're at 43 wins. Uh, and don't we expect in the in the whole field of regression that at some point that's got to flip around? And also, they're 9-22 and 22 in one-run games, and that seems ridiculous. And... If that all, we we can't say, I don't think, Gene, that that is going to even out because these are still, we tend to think of a season or a half season as a long sample size, a large sample size, but it really isn't. It's still too short and there, there are very wide error bars associated with anything that we think about. But 10 games short of your Pythagorean uh, uh, one loss expectation is pretty pretty stark. Yeah, it's all happened in the last month and a half too. But what I think is going to stop them is that they're going to be dumpers. I mean, he's a traitor as it is. I don't think they have any shot at all. I mean, even to squeak into a wild card, I figure Casimir is definitely going to go. And he'll trade anybody. I mean, he's shown that. So I think that that team is going to wind up, you know, they're in fourth now. I think they're going to wind up last um, just because he's going to be set of sights on the future. And the team that's on the field now is not going to be the team that's on the field in a month. So maybe we should throw that out. And as you said, Gene, uh, I looked at the uh, luck rating that they call it at BaseballReference.com for the Pythagorean versus uh, the real, and everybody in the National League is like within one or two games of where they really ought to be, so there's really nothing for us to look at there in terms of uh, expecting a team to fall off the pace or to pick up the pace. They're all pretty much where they ought to be. Based on their run differential, we should explain that all the Pythagorean method is is a expectation based on run differential. Yeah, and it's amazing that it's, you know, it goes back to early 80s, as I think when Bill James introduced it. And all these years later, it still holds up, and it's that's a cool thing. Besides uh, the Baseball HQ Radio podcast, no, I know, Gene, uh, your dulcet tones are heard on Sirius XM quite a bit. And are you on a particular show on a particular day, or do you just uh, cover all the bases as far as the show's on Sirius XM? Well, I'm a regular guest on Friday mornings at 9.30 Eastern. And so I go on for half an hour with Nando and Tony and Corey Parson in the Funhouse. And we always have a, a good time with that. We talk a lot about DFS, um, as is appropriate. The only problem for me is it's Friday, and Friday is 
a really hard day for DFS because it has the uh, it's a full card of games going on at the same time, and that increases the the randomness exponentially and makes Friday nights and Tuesdays and Sundays are the really hard nights for me anyway. I find that I do better when I have a more limited slate. Um, but we still have a lot of fun. And it usually mentions some interesting things and you know, see if we can pick out a particular player or two that will uh, that will do the well that night. When you stopped doing the uh, Wise Guy Baseball Annual, one of the reasons you cited was you didn't want to be giving away your player picks to all your competitors. And so now you go on SiriusXM Radio and you give out your daily player picks to all your competitors. It seems even worse. I'm a rank hypocrite. <laughs> There's no question about What rank are you? <laughs> the lowest of the low. Um, anyway, but here's the thing, is that I'm starting a new website. It's going to be up in two or three weeks um, where I'm going to be charging people nine ninety five a month for my picks. And so I'm, I want to get out there and... Um, you know, establish a, a track record so that people can say, wow, this guy's a genius, or wow, this guy's a moron. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's going to be a brand new website. I'm in the process of designing it now. It's uh, w- with professional help, I might add. <laughs> and it's going to be up in two or three weeks. And um, so I'm really excited about it. And uh, it's going to be a new thing. I'm still going to do my Wise Guy Baseball Annual. That's going to be part of the deal. Um, I won't be posting in the winter months, but you know, starting in the beginning of February, you're going to get the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle of Wise Guy Baseball for um, for the upcoming season, and then for the DFS, which I've decided is now going to be my primary focus. I guess we have something in common. Just the other day, somebody told me I needed to get professional help. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on your SiriusXM show and your Facebook feed, you mentioned that you like to talk about screwball ideas. Uh, one of the best things about having you on is talking about screwball ideas, so share one with us. Well, it's not a screwball idea. It's, um, it's the idea that high strikeout fly ball hitters cannot sustain a high batting average, but if they are of a certain quality... They will have massive streaks in which they do hit for power and for batting average for at least two months and sometimes for more than a year. Um, as I say, it's not a screwball idea. It's an idea that, that, um, that's been proven time and time again, and you see it every single year and even within a year. And to spot those players and to get them on the rise and leave them alone when they're headed for a fall is one of the keys to winning this year, whether it's daily or full season games. Who have you seen? Oh, not the... a screwball. I deny it. <laughs> who was the last guy that threw the screwball regularly in baseball? I know Mike Marshall threw it. Yeah, and um, you know Hector Santiago when he came up was throwing a screwball. I, I don't know if they call it that anymore. I mean, because kind of the two seam fastball is sort of it's sort of like um, the opposite of the cutter. Yeah, as far as the, the movement of the baseball is concerned. But I, I don't think there's anybody out there now who, who throws the you know the official screwball you know when they're actually turning their, their pitching arm in as they deliver the baseball. I don't think there's anybody that's doing it. It has a, market inefficiency. It has a reputation for being very tough on your arm. I saw a photograph of Carl Hubble once after his career was over, and his arm from throwing all those screwballs, his arm was literally rolled around underneath so that the palm of his hand, when his hand was just hanging at his side the palm of his hand was facing outwards and the back of his hand was touching his hip. Yeah, I know that picture. It's uh, it's actually really cool. But, you know, he had a long career. He did it. 
somebody else can too. And nowadays, if you could have that kind of career, man, how many millions would you be hauling in? I'm sure Carl Hubble didn't make a ton of money. Although, you know, Gene, the other day uh, I was rereading Ball Four, and uh, and Jim Bouton in the early part of the book is talking about the salary negotiations that he went through with the Yankees and then later on with uh, the Seattle Pilots, the late lamented Seattle Pilots. And the, the dollar amounts seemed relatively skimpy, but I stuck them into the one of those online inflation calculators, and you say, okay, how much is 30, he was talking about 30,000 bucks, and how much is 30,000 bucks in 1963 worth in 2015? And it's quite a bit, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, so they were enjoying a pretty good lifestyle, albeit not in the, you know, getting themselves into billionaire class, which is what some of these guys do now. Yeah, I think they were always relatively well paid. Um, compared to the, if you go back and you read the sports writers, I mean, going back even to the early 1900s, um, they're always talking about overpaid ball players even then. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, in a way, it was it was more sane. It, and then in another way, baseball reflects the society around us. Is that you know certain few people make insane amounts of money, um, but of course. The minimum salary is what half a million dollars a year, and that's right. not exactly chicken feed. So yeah, I mean, even relatively, they're more, they're better paid now. But I don't think they were ever or ever really regarded themselves as being, you know, underpaid, except in relation to the other players, which is never going to change. Um, yeah, I mean, I really, if you go back and look at the '60s Sports Illustrated, they talk about the you know the high-priced St. Louis Cardinals, you know, Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and Tim McCarver and they were making $40,000 a year, and they traded Steve Carlton because he wanted $60,000 a year. Um, but that was a lot of money in those days. You know, in those days, $25,000 bought you a really nice house. Now it doesn't buy you uh, two bathrooms. <laughs> That's right, and uh, I, I always like to look at it in terms of cars. Most of those guys, even in those days, were driving Cadillacs and Lincoln Continentals and so forth uh, because they could aff- easily afford it. That kind of a car was a $3,500 or $4,000 touch, and of course now it's 20 times that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the Volkswagen Bug, I, as I recall, was 1600 bucks, brand new. I a can... lot of parents bought them for their high school kids. 1600 I... bucks. can you imagine that? I can remember my dad buying uh, the only new car that he ever bought, I think, in his life in 1970 was a Datsun 510. I remember the Datsun, just a little Econo box car, and uh, it was exactly $3,000 in 1970. And I don't know what a sort of base level, mid-sized Datsun Nissan costs now, but it's got to be 30 Easy. That's right. Then you start loading it up, and then all of a sudden it's 40 Gene, before the season started, talking of players and streaks as you were a moment ago, the smart money said the top pitching producer in fantasy baseball would either be Max Scherzer or the Dodgers ace. But not many of us thought the Dodgers ace would mean Zach Greinke. What do you make of Greinke's extraordinary season so far? Well, I think he's a little over his head, but he's a very good pitcher. I mean, it's certainly within the realm of um, reasonable luck. I mean, he's just on the high end. Um, I think he'll come back to earth a little bit. I think uh, Kershaw will come up a little bit, and by the end of the season, maybe Grinky will have a little bit better of a year. But it's not—it's not a crazy anomaly. It's just a one of those things that happens in uh, in baseball. I don't think Grinky's—you um, know—he's a little over his head. Obviously, he's in a shutout streak. I mean, that's no news to anybody. Um, and he's a very good pitcher. Um, he's just a very good pitcher on a very good role. 
Um, and God bless you if you took him. To- well, I wish I had instead of Adam Wainwright, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, his, his overall earned run average now 130, which is almost a full run better than second place. I think A.J. Burnett is around uh, 225 or something like that. And uh, his uh, Granky's whip is now at around 0.8. And this is in a lot of innings, Gene. And I wonder, do you think that there are certain players whose skill set just happens to match up really well with what's going on in the game in the larger game. So, for instance, we know that the umpires are calling the low outside strike. Could it be that Zach Greinke's just one of those guys who's perfectly positioned to take advantage of that phenomenon because he throws a lot of low outside balls that are actually now just becoming strikes, not because he threw them better, but because they're being called differently? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Any pitcher who can put the ball where he wants it um, in today's game is. Um, is going to be successful, at least up to a certain point. And I think we're seeing that not only with Greinke, but on the lower level. I mean, in a lot of ways, this seems to be the year of the, that the useless retread um, is coming up and being successful. I mean, you mentioned A.J. Burnett, perfect example. He seems to be a better pitcher now than he ever was before. Um, Giovanni Gallardo, uh, John Lackey, um, C.J. Wilson, and Dan Harron. I mean, these guys are scrappy undrafted players who are actually doing pretty well and i think it's solely because they can put the ball where he wants to so yeah i think that's an excellent point that might be something else that uh about the umpires that if you demonstrate control and this this is something that they've said about umpires for a long time you're going to get the benefit of the doubt more often if you're not missing a lot and by a lot and i was watching the uh, i don't know if you caught any of it but the uh, Scherzer Granky matchup on Sunday the Dodgers in Washington uh, what a matchup first of all and Granky certainly uh, was every bit of uh, what 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 i expected to see but he was definitely getting strike calls on balls and the announcer said and and i knew from my own experience that having umpired is that if you're always around the plate you're going to get more strikes called even when they're not strikes and if but if you're some guy who's you know a foot wider or a foot high and the next one's in that same spot the umpire's more likely to say you're not a good pitcher so you don't get that call yeah i agree and the other point is that it's easier for the catcher to frame the pitches that are outside a little bit when they're when they're close and when they're close to where the catcher is setting up um that makes it a lot easier and then the other thing is might be purely human, you know, not to knock the umpires, but they get caught up in the human drama a little bit and, and you know, they add their little bit to it. And so, you know, believe me, I expect Grinky to come back to earth, but I am not betting against him anytime soon. Let's put it that way. How do you assess a guy who's on a hot streak? There's a lot of sabermetric theorizing that tells us we've got to be cautious about recency bias in making our player assessments. We tend, just because of our instinctive need to find pattern, to overestimate the significance of more recent information. But it seems, to me anyway, that a hot streak like Grenke is on is really important, especially in daily fantasy, but even in the larger sense. How do you respond to a player who's having a hot streak like Greinke's, especially for your daily fantasy purpose? Does he move up a notch, or do you get worried that it's been going on too long? I'm on him until he shows me a reason why I shouldn't be on him. I mean, one of the things, a recency bias, you know, it's, it's a nice little phrase, but, it, you know, go back to Baseball HQ's thing about if a pitcher has thrown six PQS four or fives in a row, he's more likely to continue to do that. Um, so that validates the recency bias. And, I, 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 you know, there is such a thing as getting on a roll, and I think it's especially true 
of a pitcher with control. And if you, you know, if you're putting the ball where you want to, I mean, that's not bias. That's, you know, that's skill. Um, so yeah, I'm going to ride it until I see a reason not to. Earlier in the year, Chris Sale of the White Sox, I think, had five, six, seven games in a row with ten strikeouts or more, uh, maybe even up to nine, something like that. And he was, uh, I think, he tied the major league record and and was within a few strikeouts of actually breaking it. And and uh, the one he didn't get ten, he got nine or something like that. Then he went on and had a couple more. And it it does seem that for a pitcher, especially, and I'll ask you about a hitter in a second, but it does seem like for a pitcher. That a that a hot streak is sustainable. They're doing something right. They're they're comfortable with what they're doing. It's a feel kind of thing. Maybe it defies science. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that especially at the upper end is where you're going to see it. With these guys who are already highly skilled, and they're just in a groove. You know, it's sort of like being a musician when you just, you know, where you all of a sudden there's times where you can't do anything wrong, and. They may not understand it. We may not understand it. But I'm not going to go off it until I see a reason not to. Well, as you say, uh, Gene, one of the things about a hot streak by a Granky or a Kershaw or a Chris Sale is that we know these guys are elite pitchers, so it's not surprising to us when they go on elite-level streaks. The hot streak kind of confirms what we know or what we think we know about the pitcher. But what about a hot streak by a lesser pitcher? Uh, uh, here in Toronto, everybody was all abuzz about Marco Estrada. He had a nice little streak going. He came close to perfect games a couple of games in a row. Came close to no hitters. He had a real nice little streak going before it kind of subsided. And now he had another terrific start on the weekend. Would you give how much less weight do you give a streak by a Marco Estrada than you do a Zach Greinke? Well, a lot less. But one of the things that I would do with guys like that is, um, first of all, I'm very biased towards using them at home um, because that's a 10% advantage. That's, <laughs> pardon me, a constant through baseball history. The other thing about Marco Estrada and several pitchers like him is that, I don't know if you ever look at heat maps of hitters, you know, the hot zones and the cold zones. and Well, Fangraphs, published him, and I was looking at him, and I looked at 50 hitters. And every single hitter, all 50, liked the ball middle in and down. There wasn't one hitter out of 50 who liked the ball up and away. And I'm talking about in the strike zone, not balls. Every single one of them was blue in there. Marco Strato is a high ball pitcher, and batters can't hit the high pitch. So I think that as long as he can do that, and you're, he's not the only one. Um, Chris Young was the perfect example. He throws 82 miles an hour, and he gets guys out all the time because he pitches consistently up in the zone. Um, also, they're calling it strikes now. I yeah. know that people say that the strike zone has expanded down, and I, I agree it has, but it's also expanded up. And they're calling those pitches strikes, so the batters have to swing at them. Um I think that as long as a guy, a clearly lesser pitcher like that, as long as he's at home and he's got the uh, that 10% edge, I think he's worth cautiously sticking with. Uh, I mean, I don't expect it to last forever, but, you know, there is some reality behind it. Is any of this different when you're talking about hitters who are on streaks? It seems different to me. Yeah, well, I think that the way people have studied streaks all these years is really the wrong way to go about it. You know, is to pick a guy and then say, well, what did he do in his next at-bat, in his next game, in his next week, like that. 
I think though, since since we watch the games and we know that streaks exist, I think the way to study it is to start with the streak and look at characteristics of that. And one of the things that I that I mentioned before was these the high strikeout fly ball hitters. And these guys have always played streaky. I can't, you know, I don't claim to be able to say when it's going to start and when it's going to stop. But I do know that when a streak or a slump starts with these guys, ride it. Because it's going to last a long time. Take When I say a long time, I mean at least two months, and it could be more than a year. Um, I can get into some names with you if you want. Nelson Cruz would be a perfect example. His streak lasted all of last year, and he was on fire at the beginning of this year. And then he's basically done nothing since. I would expect him to continue to do nothing for probably the rest of the season. And if he does get hot again, it won't be until late. Um, he, and on the other end, a guy like, you were going to ask me about my <laughs> later on, I'm sure, but Jay Bruce is a guy who really did, who did not hit up to his ability for a long time, and he's rather quietly been picking it up, and I think that that's going to continue, and he's a guy that I would really target for the rest of this season. Some smart team is going to see if they can tr- get him in a trade. I have Jay Bruce and Nelson Cruz on my Tout Wars uh, mixed team, and in fact, I traded Nelson Cruz on Sunday for James Shields, so now you're making me feel very good about, about that deal. But I am getting a lot of inquiries about uh, Jay Bruce as well. Uh, leaving aside streaks, uh, Gene, what do you make of a pitcher like Mark Burely? Uh, I have him on my Tout Wars team as well, and... He seems to be like the antithesis of what we expect from a starting pitcher in modern baseball. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but he's leading all of baseball in complete games. His ERA is 336. His whip is around 130, something like that. It's useful. It's not great, but it's useful in a lot of contexts. So what fantasy value do you attribute to a guy who just seems to know how to pitch, to use the uh, cliche? Well, I don't think you want two of him because you'll dig yourself a deep strikeout hole, but one of them is fine. I mean, this is really nothing new in baseball history. The finesse lefty is, you know, goes back to the early 1900s. Um, so they are definitely a reality. It's they, they let the hitters get themselves out. Um, that's a skill that you can't measure in strikeouts, but what they're counting on is weak contact, and they get it. Um, it's not something that you would bet on, but, you know, Mark Burley's now won over two. No wins aren't supposed to matter, but over the course of a career, of course they matter. Um, he's a good pitcher. He's not a fantasy stud. He's not a guy that you want to target or anything like that. And as I say, you don't want two of them. But one of them, sure. You know, you can't chase wins, but you better get them or you're not going to win. And something else about Mark Beerley that just popped into my head that I, I know is uh, true. He fields his position really well, and I don't think that gets enough credit in so far as um, when we make our assessments of pitchers, a guy who's a really adroit fielder can really help himself out out there. A fair number of balls end up in that area where he's going to have to make a play. Right. It's one of the problems with fielding independent pitching is that pitching is not fielding independent. Um but yeah, all the little things. He he doesn't throw wild pitches. He doesn't hit batters. He's hard to run on. He can get a double play. These things are not managed, uh, measured in the skill stats, but they're all things that pitchers can and sometimes do do. And then there's the opposite end, the pitchers who don't do those things, who might have great skills, but they're beating themselves, and they're not allowing those skills to come into play. Um, Danny Santana is the perfect example of a guy like that. 
You know, there's no way in the world if Danny Santana had Mark Burley's you know peripheral skills, Danny Santana would never lose a game. Um, AJ Burnett was a perfect example of that his entire career. Um, now he's he's become a, to the point where he's not beating himself. And look at him; he's second in the major leagues in ERA, even though his stuff is not as good as it was ten years ago. And so, yeah, the point is really valid. Uh, when you say Danny Santana, you mean Irvin Santana? No, I mean the guy on in the Indians, Salazar. Oh, Danny Salazar. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. M- million dollar arm, ten cent head. My dad used to say about guys like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember my grandfather saying that, and that's, you know, it was true a hundred years ago, and it's still true. These heat maps, you know, I was, uh, we were, I was watching a, a game with my wife. She loves watching baseball, and they put a heat map on and showed this is where the batter likes. It likes to hit the ball, and she looks at this heat map, and she goes, "Isn't that what they call a strike?" <laughs> you know, he, 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 he likes it thigh high, right in the middle of the plate. Gosh, there's a surprise. Right, but I'm, but when I looked at him, all the reds are middle in and down, lefty, righty. It doesn't matter. Um, every single one of them was like that, and so I don't think we should be surprised when these, you know, uh, supposedly mediocre pitchers who pitch up in the zone have success because. The hitters can't do it. And in a way, it makes sense because, you know, for decades, pitchers have been told, keep the ball down, keep the ball down. Right. This is sort of an, uh, a Darwinian reaction to that on, the behalf of, on behalf of the hitters. So everybody's a low ball hitter now. When, you, when the announcers say, well, he got that pitch up and he hit it out, when they say up, they mean thigh high. Yeah. That's not up. That's the middle. Everybody says look for a high ground ball pitcher, but you're, you say that uh, an equally high percentage fly ball pitcher could be just as valuable. Yeah, on the extremes. Um, if you control the strike zone and you're an extreme fly ball pitcher, you're going to be a successful pitcher, unless you're in a band box. And even then, you know, you'll still be successful in a team context. You will, your ERA will be a little higher. But the fact of the matter is, is that ground ball pitchers do not get as the strikeouts that fly ball pitchers get, and they don't have as good whips because ground balls are base hits more often than fly balls. They do have better ERAs, and they, because of that, they do tend to get you know a win or two more. So those are the four categories for starting pitchers. Two are good for fly ballers, two are good for ground ballers. Do not forsake a pitcher because he's a fly ball pitcher, or you know, you're, you're going to let somebody else take him and beat you. So, you know, and if, you know, if you're looking for a staff full of ground ballers, don't be surprised when you're you know, eighth in strikeouts. And possibly, as you said, a little bit uh, poorer in whip than you'd like to be as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey. And Gene, we have our very first question from BaseballHQRadio at gmail.com. Uh, Mike from Vancouver Island has the first and last question we're ever going to ask about a trade he's thinking of making. He has a big surplus in stolen bases and a lot of mediocre pitchers. And he's going to try to shore up his rotation by making a deal. So he's going to offer uh, Gerard Dyson, Kevin Pillar, or Billy Burns, plus a, a mediocre starter. So let's break this down, Gene. Of Dyson, Pillar, and Burns, which one would you want to trade away? Dyson, because of the playing time, although he'll probably get more with, um, with Gordon out. Um, but he's the most limited player of that, of that bunch. So, yeah, he's the guy I'd trade. I definitely wouldn't trade Pilar. I think he's uh, he's verging on being able to contribute in all five categories. Uh, how about the pitchers? He's talking about Derek Holland, R.A. Dickey, or Eduardo Rodriguez as a trade chip. 
hard as it is to believe. Which one of those would you trade away? Definitely Dickey. I like Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, he may have some growing pains this year, but he's he's a big lefty who throws hard, and to me he's gold, especially if he's in a keeper league. I wouldn't trade him at all. I try to get him. Okay, so we're going to trade away Gerard Dyson and R.A. Dickey. Here's who he's looking at asking for, uh, Tanaka, Rodon, Burley, Pineda, or Quintana. Do you think, not which one would you want, but which one do you think you could get if you were offering Dickey and Dyson? Well, I would hope to be able to get Quintana. Um, I think he was he's a bad luck early guy this year and is almost certain to be better for, for the rest of the season. He's a good pitcher. Tanaka is a master, but, you know, he's hanging by a, his ligament in his elbow. I think he probably has the most value based on what he's done. And whoever's going to take him knows he's taking a risk, but knows he could be getting a very, very good pitcher for the rest of the season. So, so Mike on Vancouver Island, it sounds like Gene McCaffrey is advising you to package up Dyson and uh, R.A. Dickey and see if you can get Jose Quintana or Masahiro Tanaka in trade. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy wise guy. And Gene, you had a band once upon a time, and I understand you're getting the band back together. Give us the details, when and where. Well, I'm leaving at uh, 4.30 this morning. I'm going to Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, my uh, my old guitar player um, is turning 60 tomorrow, or uh, Wednesday, and so he rented a hall, and we've got all the equipment, and we couldn't get our drummer, our original drummer, but we have a really good drummer um, from that area, and she's playing with us, and we're going to rehearse tomorrow night, and then we're going to play on Wednesday, and we're doing all songs that we've played a lot of times before, so we shouldn't have too much trouble remembering them. <laughs> but it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to rock and roll. We're going to play loud and uh, see if I survive the night. And is the event open to the public? I think so. I mean, it's it's really a party. But if anybody there wants to come, Northampton, Massachusetts, I don't know the name of the place, but email me at genevm at aol.com and I'll uh, give you the particular. Sure, come on down. Or up, as the case may be. And if you want to come, Patrick, drive over. That'd be a drive, all right. Uh, there was a recent article in the Rock Music Press someplace that said Pete Townsend is the greatest rock guitarist of the 1960s. And I'm not going to ask you to assess whether Pete Townsend was or wasn't the greatest rock guitarist of any era. But in general, what do you think of these sorts of claims that magazines make? Oh, I think they're trying to sell magazines. and It's, it's kind of, it, I don't care who's the best. I just care if he's good. Did you do something great there? Yes. Okay. You're good. Um, and I think it, maybe what they're trying to say is, well, Pete Townsend was a little underrated, which he was, and he was innovative, which he was, um, particularly good uh, rhythm guitar player. Uh, but he had a kind of uh, flaky drummer and a busy bass player. So somebody had to anchor the music, and it turned out to be his guitar, and that's that was a good idea. It was a great concept. It certainly worked. I think that, like you said, I think they're just trying to sell magazines to b- cause arguments and everybody runs out and buys the magazine to see, how could you say that about Pete Townsend and leave out Jimi Hendrix or, right. you know, leave out Keith Richards or whoever it is that you're leaving out George Harrison. You know, there's a million guys and, and certainly there are going to be those who think that all of those guys are lousy because nobody's ever heard of Jerry Flanagan who played uh, down here at my local club. He was better than all of them, you know. Right, right, right. I think somebody said one of the better guitarists I think Clapton, when somebody asked him if he was the best guitarist ever or in some time frame, said, 
Well, we don't know because all we know is that guys like me got lucky and, and made it to the top, and there may be some guy in his garage somewhere who could blow us all away, just nobody's ever heard of him. Yeah, well, and a lot of it depends on the songs, you know. I mean, it's not really luck. Um, he just happened to be playing on some really great songs, and they catch the public's imagination. And, you know, a lot of guitar players are much better sidemen than they are songwriters or, you know, people who have a musical concept that, that uh, grabs an audience. So, you know, I've known a lot of guitar players who were really good guitar players. If you gave them the context and say, here, you know, play this, um, they could do it better than I can. But the idea is to come up with something that's worth listening to that the, the, the general audience, who are not guitar players and couldn't care less about the guitar player's technique, um, that, that's going to grab them. And then they notice, wow, that's great guitar playing. But it's the song. It's all about the song. You're also a regular contributor to rockremnants.com, a music site that you put together with Peter Kreutzer and Steve Moyer and uh, uh, Laura Michaels and a couple of others from the fantasy baseball world. But you're all really into music, so you write about music on there. What have you been writing about lately at rockremnants.com? Um, I've just been trying to pick out stuff that I think is overlooked, um, and then I post it. Um, and other than that, I react to, uh, I make disparaging remarks about things that other people po- uh, post. No, I really don't do that. But um, one of the things that I've, um, one of the bands that, an old band, I had to do my homework on them, but they're just really terrific, is Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. And these guys just rocked. Um, and they were really innovative. They have a great guitar player named Cal Green, who was, um, who was actually a big influence. If you listen to him, you'll say, wow, you can hear a little Jimi Hendrix in there, even though the, you know, the equipment and the volume is not there. A lot of the, the techniques and the, and the style of fills and soloing, um, you can tell that Jimi Hendrix uh, learned a lot from Cal Green, and also the songs are just terrific. He wrote the twist and uh, Finger Poppin' Time and Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go that are, that are you know, undeniable classics. In the, and uh, I think he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not that that matters, but he belongs there. He's great. Which of those songs do you think we should play for our audience right now? Let's play Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, because it's just such a cool rockin' tune.
From Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, that's the 1960 hit Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go. On Baseball HQ Radio, our pick to click from Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball wise guy, and Hank Ballard's cousin, her name was Florence, and you might remember her as a member of the Supremes. Uh, Hank Ballard was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. The Midnighters followed in 2012. And Gene, that is some classic ancestral rock and roll. Cool, man. Before we wrap up uh, during the season, Gene, as you know, we ask our experts to talk about facts and flukes. These are players who are outliers, uh, either uh, exceeding or underperforming their expectations. Uh, get you to pick out a couple of hitters, a couple of pitchers, and then tell us whether the underperformance or overperformance is a fact or a fluke. Let's start in the American League with a hitter. Who's an outlier hitter, and is he a fact or a fluke? Um, Edward Encarnacion. I think he's he's hitting hurt. Um, if he gets healthy, his two thirty two batting average is definitely a fluke, and the, you know the power that we always that's always there is going to come along with it. Um, he's a guy that I'm, he doesn't strike out a lot. Um, he's a guy that if he's, if his shoulder comes around, he's going to be great. Another one is Alexei Ramirez, um, who's also batting average is way down, but nothing has changed in his game. Um, nothing of substance anyway. Um, he's a guy that I would, that I would expect to, uh, to have a big second half. And a hitter in the national league out outlier performance factor fluke. Two guys, Jay Bruce we talked about. Another guy is Brandon Belt. Um, he's got a terrible park to, to hit in, but he's got a super high line drive rate. I think he's right on the ball. He's a guy who's, who's 230 batting average is a fluke. And moving over to the mound, how about a pitcher in the American League who's an outlier performer, and is he a factor or a fluke? Well, Corey Kluber is currently ranks 43rd in baseball in ERA, and he's much better than that. He had some bad luck coming to him. He's gotten it. Um, I expect him to right the ship and be top 10 from now on. And uh, a National League pitcher? Um, Harvey. If they get him out of that stupid six-man rotation, and um, where I think it's affected his control, um, once he starts pitching more, I think that he's going to also shoot to the top. And forget top 10, he's going to be top 5. So all flukes, uh, Edwin Encarnacion, Alexei Ramirez, Jay Bruce, and Brandon Belt among the hitters. On the mound, Corey Kluber and Matt Harvey. Get all these guys, says Gene McCaffrey. Uh, Gene, tell us where listeners can read more or listen to more of you. Well, for now, only on SiriusXM, but in two, three weeks, listen for the announcement of the new WiseGuyBaseball.com. And I, I think it's going to be terrific. And I'm going to I'm going to give you, for your nine ninety five a month, I'm going to give you personal. Not personalized. I hate that word. Yeah. It's going to be personal attention. And daily picks, and the usual Wise Guy Baseball annual. Gene, thanks a million for doing this. It's been uh, tremendous fun as always and really interesting as always. I do appreciate it. I appreciate that you let me on, Patrick. Um, you're the best. You're the best interviewer in the business, and keep up the good work. Well, I'll sure try, and I guess we'll see you in Phoenix in, era in November. Yeah, looking forward to it. Just the most fun you can have with your clothes on, I think. Uh, thanks, Gene. Thank Next you. up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyers coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. 
so we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. For example, this week in Facts and Flukes Performance Validation Analysis, Jeffrey Tomich looks at Chris Bryant, Troy Tulowitzki, and many other players. In our Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide, Stephen Nickrand has base performance value surgers and faders, looking at David Price, Carlos Martinez, and many other starting pitchers. And in Playing Time Tomorrow, Christopher Olson looks at the American League East, and specifically at Chris Colabello's shaky glove in Toronto, spotty outfield production in Baltimore, the Red Sox seemingly shaky future, and more. Of course, we also have daily matchups report and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's team coverage, minor league scouting, and the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyers, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Yankees right-hander Luis Severino is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Despite all of their injuries, the New York Yankees surprisingly find themselves in first place in the AL East. The organization has worked hard to replenish their minor league system, and that should start yielding some nice dividends soon. One name for fantasy owners to keep an eye on is Dominican right-hander Luis Severino. Despite being just 6 feet and 195 pounds, Severino has a plus fastball that sits at 94 to 97 and has been clocked as high as 99 miles an hour. He backs up the heater with a plus changeup and a decent mid-80s slider. In addition to the plus raw stuff, Severino has excellent control and for his career has walked just 2.3 batters per nine. Severino started the year AA Trenton and pitched well enough to get an early season promotion to AAA where he's been nothing short of lights out. In nine AAA starts, the 21-year-old Severino is 5-0 with a 1.79 ERA and a 184 batting average against. The Yankees could use Severino as insurance in case one of their fragile starters hits the DL or as trade bait as they try to add offense. In either case, Luis Severino is one of the best pitching prospects in the AL and looks ready to make his Major League debut soon. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes daily call-ups coverage of Dodgers pitcher Zach Lee, White Sox pitcher Frankie Montas, and many more, and our Watch list report is a quick hit look at minor leaguers who could be on the verge of call-up. 
Many players in the watch list are not top-level prospects, but could provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation. In the latest edition, they look at prospects who might be included in trades. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Ryan Bloomfield is taking the week off. He just got married, and they're moving. So it's a stressful week for Ryan and his new bride. So we'll move right on to Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Rafael Soriano, Tyler Saladino, and Yuri Perez. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Is your team ready to go in the second half? As the pennant race heats up, we'll profile three frequent flyers who may be flying under the radar in your league, beginning with Rafael Soriano of the Chicago Cubs. Soriano was called up on Monday when the Cubs designated pitcher Edwin Jackson for assignment, has over 200 saves at the major league level, including 32 for the Nationals last season. Although most owners have low expectations for the 35-year-old former All-Star, Soriano could easily step into the closer's role in Chicago. Remember... The last time Soriano played for Joe Madden was in 2010 in Tampa, when Soriano led the American League with 45 saves. Since then, Soriano has saved over 40 games in three of the past five seasons. Still, the Cubs have only generated 33 save opportunities in 90 games this season. At that pace, the Cubs would uh, only produce roughly 25 more save opportunities in 2015. Because the baseball forecaster projects Soriano's conversion rate to be only 72% in the second half, the Cubs' current pace would probably yield roughly 15 saves for Soriano this season. He's worth a flyer, especially in NL-only leagues, but proceed cautiously. Next, let's head to the south side of Chicago, where 26-year-old White Sox infielder Tyler Saladino has been making a strong case for more playing time. After going hitless as Major League debut on July 10th, Saladino has recorded a hit in each of the next six games, including a ninth-inning home run to spoil Danny Duffy's bid for a complete game shutout last Sunday. Not necessarily known for hitting for power or average of the minors, what separates Saladino from other players, especially corner infielders, is his stolen base potential. Ranked in the top five for stolen bases in the International League prior to his call-up, Saladino is likely to be Chicago's starting third baseman now that the White Sox have parted ways with Connor Gillespie. Though he could eventually qualify at every infield position plus left field, Saladino primarily plays defense on the left side of the diamond at short and third. In addition, despite bag 308 through his first 28 plate appearances, it's important to remember that Tyler Saladino, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Owners in ale-only league should grab Tyler Saladino now. And be sure to check out last Sunday's edition of Plague Time Today on BaseballHQ.com for more information on Tyler Saladino and other players. Finally, our last frequent flyer comes to us from the Atlanta Braves. Claimed off waivers from the New York Yankees in January, 25-year-old Yori Perez was leading the Air National League with 28 steals prior to his call-up to Atlanta on June 18th. Betting 313 through his last seven games at 286 on the season, Perez probably best fits most teams as a role player, but a small ball approach could help in the short term in several categories, especially steals. Don't invest a lot, though. The numbers certainly do not support it. Plus, he may be set down when Freddie Freeman returns. However, Perez did steal 64 bases in 2010 in the minors, and he's already eclipsed his stolen base total from last year. 
For that reason, Perez could be a valuable selection in daily leagues and some NL-only formats. And if you want to make some valuable selections this season, consider adding Rafael Soriano, Tyler Saladino, and Yuri Perez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 44 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our Tuesday tout for this edition of the show, the Fantasy Baseball Wise Guy himself. It was Gene McCaffrey, one of the nicest guys in a business full of terrific people. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon, and our frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And remember our email address, bhqradio at gmail.com. Be the first to know when the new podcasts are available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.